Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Today, we have an incredible show for you. We have Jennifer Murphy and Dan Judge from NetPlus Alliance with us here today, a fifth-generation family business that we have tons to learn from. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us today. And as we always do, um, we'd just like each of you to introduce yourselves. Tell us, you know, what was your journey into the family business? Um, what, was it a twisty, winding road? Or was it something that you woke up and said, I can't wait to do this? So Jennifer, if you don't mind uh, starting us off. Well, uh, I guess mine was a little twistier <laughs> than yours was, but uh I'm the current president of NetPlus Alliance, very proud to be the fifth generation of this family business. Um, I didn't really come right into distribution. And I think if you had asked me when I was in college or younger, if I was going to be working in the distribution business, I would have given a very enthusiastic no. <laughs> um, I graduated from St. Bonaventure University, which is here locally, um, just outside of the Buffalo area and majored in marketing. I took a little break after college and lived out in California for a while and then moved back to the area briefly before I took a job in Boston at a company called EF Education. They were a company that did cultural exchange and language education for teachers and students. And I oversaw, I started in the marketing department and then I eventually, um, through my career there, I became the director of incentives. So I oversaw their loyalty program um, which was a, you know, a million dollar loyalty program that we used to facilitate relationships and create engagement across all the educators that were in, um, that were our customers. So I moved back to the area when my daughter, shortly after my daughter was born, um, my husband and I are both from the area. He's from quite a large family. I'm, there's only my sister and I, so from a much smaller family, but we both wanted to be back in Lockport um, to, to be closer to our families and raise our kids. And in 2006, my dad said to me, you know, you have a little time on your hands. Maybe you'd like to come and help my business that I started a few years ago. We could use a little bit of marketing help. So you could work part-time or you can work from home. I go, I often say to people in our industry, it's sort of the way that he tricked me into getting into the business. Um, so that was in 2006. I was the director of marketing and just managed a lot of the aspects of the marketing program, implemented email marketing, um, transitioned the little kind of newsletter publication that they made into a full color newsletter with advertising. Um, and then also really just started to take on more responsibilities. As the business grew, my dad started handing me more things to do from in the operations side. So I transitioned from being the director of marketing to being the VP of marketing and the COO. Um, and then in 2013, I became the president of the business, which I still am today. Congratulations. That's, that is a twisty, windy road. Yeah. California to Boston and back to Lockport. Sure. And, and you know, one of the things, a lot of family businesses have that rule that not everybody does that you need to go and prove yourself outside of the business first. That's one of the nice things from, you know, you know, your dad's perspective is he could look back and watch your career and say, yeah, she'd be good here. I can yeah. teach you the other stuff, you know, knowing right. that, you know, she's there. Good. It wasn't as glamorous though, with all the traveling that she was doing <laughs> in the previous job. Fair. So Dan, tell us your story. How did you end up in the family business? Well, mine is a little, a little more direct. Uh, just to give you a little of the history of, of our corporation, the company started in 1885 
on the banks of the Erie Canal as a machine shop. Um, I would have been a distant cousin, William Nolan, ran a machine shop. And of course, the canal had just really come into being and there were a lot of industry and manufacturing built up along the canal because in Blackport, there's a 60 foot drop of, so there was a lot of water power. Uh, a lot of mills were created. Uh, in 1919, uh, William Nolan died and he left the business to my three great uncles who were pictured right here behind me. Uh, they incorporated the business as Ward Brothers Mill Supply Company and, uh, and became more of a mill supply house than a uh, machine shop. So a mill supply house sells tools and abrasives and nuts and bolts types of materials to all of the industry that was growing up along the canal. Uh, they incorporated the business 1931. Uh, my father joined the business in uh, uh, would have been the mid uh, 40s. And uh, so as a as a young boy, I was down there packing orders and putting stuff away and worked a couple of summers driving truck. And when I got ready to go to college, he came home with a brochure from Clarkson that had a program in industrial distribution, which was our business. So it went from being known as mill supplies to industrial distribution. So I went to Clarkson, uh, took their industrial distribution program, got my degree and uh, spent two years in the army. So my, my time away from all of this was going in the army, spending a year in Vietnam, came back, uh, went to the University of Buffalo and got an MBA because I figured I needed to kind of re-educate myself, but worked at the family business while I was doing that. And my cousin, Sam Ward, who was the son of one of these, my great uncles, he was running the company at the time. He was the majority stockholder. And he said, well, you're coming to work here, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I never looked for another job and I started here and, uh, you know, with the, just grew with the company. We grew as uh, the General Motors plant here, Harrison Radiator uh, grew. They became the sole air conditioning manufacturer for GM cars and trucks. So our business grew along with them. But as, as the as business in Western New York started to leave because of the Rust Belt and all of that uh, in 1990, Sam decided to sell the business. So we sold the assets of the business I worked for the company that bought us for a couple of years and I could tell that wasn't going to work and uh, decided to start Net Plus Alliance in 2002 from nice. scratch. No, no suppliers, no distributors. We had a business plan, a couple of friends who helped me and uh, it was, uh, we're off and running. Love it. Thank you. Thank you both. That's uh, again, two different pathways in. Um, and I have heard both, you know, and that, so that that rule is just a, a, you know, a rule of thumb, I would say, in terms of having, you know, go spend three to five years proving yourself. And then if you really want to do this, you can come back is kind of what we hear again and again. Um, I, Dan, like, you know, what you said was I was I was in the shop. I was packaging orders and doing things. And so from a really young age you got to be around the business and see, you know, what, what it was like to be there. Um, I have uh, an, another family business. I love the story he used to, his grandfather was a geneticist and out from Cornell and he would splice different, you know, varieties and grow them in the greenhouse to see what, you know, where they would go and collect the seeds. And he would follow his grandfather doing all that work and just knew that, you know, there was nothing else he wanted to do besides grow cabbage. And <laughs> so, you know, yeah, but you only get that. I think those things happen when you're involved and when you're doing the kinds of things where it was fun and enjoyable. You know, I'm in this business. I did um, a bunch of years ago, when I was in high school, dad would pay me an exorbitant hourly rate which at the time was great for me. Um, 
to do pro build out prospecting cards for him. Back in the day, you know, you, everything he would dial for and to meet people and he'd say, go through the phone book and give me all the plumbers, give me all of the, you know, whatever. And it was neat. I didn't love it, but at the same time, I got a, a feel for it. So when he said, you know, you haven't asked me about coming into the business, um, you, you want, might want to take a peek at this because you'd be really good at it. And so we started talking and that's how I, you know, ended up there. But I went back if had I had a bad experience, right? You know, as you're doing those things, never would have, you know, probably considered it. So yeah, it was pretty interesting, you know, because I, I sort of worked in all aspects of the business while I was in college and in, in and before, you know, when I was just, you know, driving truck, meeting customers, uh, you know, learning how all that relationship building. But it, it was my two years in the army as a second lieutenant that really gave me the leadership uh, training that uh, is, you know, has helped me throughout throughout my whole career. Great. And what I can only say I worked in the file room when I was a kid. I would walk there after school and I did not get paid an exorbitant amount of money. I got paid a very small amount of money, enough to be able to buy candy usually between school and going toward Brothers, which was really close to where Beals McCarthy, which was close to my school where I went. But the numbers on the purchase orders were about this long and the tish and the purchase orders were made of tissue paper because they were the carbon copies. So you right. had to file these by number, by these like nine digit numbers with these little tissuey paper pieces of paper. So maybe if I had been sorting widgets in the warehouse, I would have never said that I wasn't going to work <laughs> in the business. But the best thing about the warehouse was First of all, it was cool to be in the warehouse with all the tools and all the supplies. There's also an old fashioned pop bottle machine where you could get pop out for a quarter. So that was the big incentive of working in the office and everyone was super nice. And so my dad's career in the industry over the years, we as kids got to benefit from that as well because my dad served in um, as the president of the associations that are within the industrial supply community and we got to go to shows and we got to go to things. We got to travel to places when my dad would go to, to either speak at those things or do the, to participate in those shows. And a lot of the people that are still in our industry today are people that I knew from when I was a kid. So I think one of the things about this industry is it's, it is kind of like one big family of family businesses, but people have really grown up together. So everyone is still really closely connected throughout the industry, even though it's a real big industry, it feels very small. And yeah. I, you know, I think the uh, the whole relationship building uh, through my career is what got us here. Mm -hmm. um, going up through the chairs of our trade association, so I got to know a different level of manufacturer and distributor. I was dealing with the owners, with the presidents of the companies, and then uh, after we sold the distributorship, I ran a buying group for. Uh, industrial distributors. So there were there was forty distributors that had formed a purchasing co-op, and I was actually one of the founding companies. But then when they needed a they needed a president in '93, I went to run that group, and I ran that till 2000. Okay. And then when when I decided to start Net Plus Alliance, we put a press release out. And I got calls from distributor from manufacturers the next day that I knew that said, if you're going to start this group, we're in it. So it was that relationship building over those prior 20 years that really got us to, to be able to grow the business quickly at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Great. One of the words that people are talking about still today, um, as we went through this whole COVID thing, we're still not through it. Um, but having, being able to pivot and being able to be nimble and, you know, as we talk to, um, you know, clients and, 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 and people on the show, we're always talking about when's the last time you did your SWOT analysis. You know, this is not something that you do once every three years. This is something you probably should be doing every quarter right now as we, as we, you know, are going through these difficult times, but you're, what, what started as a machine shop is not a machine shop today. And you have pivoted 
more than once. Would you, you know, one, talk about if you can, you know, go back in time for a little bit and see, you know, do you know, you know, one, what were the pivots? And two, do you know why they pivoted? Is there, a, were stories passed on in terms of, you know, what was the, what was the cause or effect of, of those pivots as they were doing it? Yeah, well, I think the, the move from being a machine shop to a mill supply business was, a, was pretty simple. I think when they were making tools and making the other things they were making in the machine shop and my, my great uncles went in to help their cousin, they just started buying inventory and having things that were already made, nuts and bolts and tools and grinding wheels and selling them. And I think eventually the machine shop business, because I don't think any of the three of them were machinists, when that sort of started, that business diminished as they started adding more inventory. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a very successful business up until really till the 1990 when we sold it. But we had trouble maintaining our sales volume as a Bethlehem Steel would close or a Republic Steel would close. We made two acquisitions to grow, but all we were doing was replacing the sales that we lost because of the customers that left. And, and the reason we were able to buy those two distributorships was because they lost the same customers mm -hmm. and, yeah. and there were people that were ready to get out of the business. Okay. Um, the pivot to once we sold the business, uh, the pivot was, I wanna stay in the business. I've got all these relationships. Is there a different way to do it? I didn't wanna, I wasn't gonna start another mill supply house. So that's when I get into running ID1, which was that first buying group that, uh, that, I, that I managed. And in those 40 distributors were all really close friends and then the manufacturers became close friends. In, in 2000, the buying group was dissolved and the members all voted to join a much larger group. And there I was in 2000 without a job. <laughs> and I needed a job at that point. Sure. And so I, I kept a couple of the people on who, who helped me run ID1. And uh, we dabbled in a couple of things for a year or so because I had a non-compete with the group that acquired our group. And then sitting around with three friends who were all retired and sort of in the business. So well, let's think about what we could do. And somebody said, well, let's start a buying group. So we, we just kept writing out all these ideas and how are we gonna do it? And, what kind of distributors do we want to attract? What industries do we want to be in? Um, how much are we going to charge? Are we going to have restricted territories like all of the other groups had restricted territories? We said, no, we're not. And um, figured out a name, came up with Net Plus Alliance. And as I said, we sent, we had a business plan and a press release and no, no suppliers and no distributors. Today, we have over 400 distributors and 160 product suppliers. Great. But, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Jennifer joining the business. Yeah. And uh, as you can tell, I'm probably, if I started in the business in 1969, I've been around for a while. So <laughs> uh, with Jennifer coming in and, and uh, really, you know, starting our marketing program, which was at that point, it was a black and white four-page newsletter. And she says, you know, Dad, you can sell those ads. <laughs> we were just putting this thing together. If somebody sent us stuff, right? they're not going to buy those ads. Well, they did. And then, then we made a color. And you know, the rest, I mean, she's just done a phenomenal job and built a great team. Great. So I'm going to, Jennifer, would you mind, you know, for those people that don't know what a buying group is and, you know, what sure. NetAppliance does, why don't you talk about, you know, NetPlus Alliance a little bit, tell us what you do, who you serve, and talk about the things that, you know, you've made, the newsletter is one of those things that you brought 
to the company through the years since you've been involved? What are some of the other things, initiatives, or you know, I call them rocks? You know, what are the rocks that we we tackled to uh, to build you know to build the business to where it is today? And how did you make the decisions to go down those roads? Sure. Sure. Um, all good questions. So buying group essentially is a group of distributors and manufacturers that make a commitment to buy from each other. We have 400 industrial and construction supplies distributors and about 180 manufacturer, wholesale and business services partners. Um, our distributors sell a lot of what my uncles had sold. Many of them are also like family businesses, family owned businesses. They sell industrial supplies, contractor supplies, safety, fasteners, anything you'd see on a job site or in a manufacturing facility to keep the wheels turning, keep the buildings going up. Um, and our members are located throughout the US. We do have a couple of members in Canada, but our footprint primarily is in the United States. Um, and those, we have about 400 distributor companies, which translates roughly to about 2,700 locations throughout the US. Wow. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the other big rocks, which we used to call them those here as well, um, I'd say one of the, the most pivotal changes in the business um, for me was I participated in a program at, through the University of Buffalo School of Management called the Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership. Um, I went into the program in 2011 and graduated in 2012. So the time um, I wasn't yet the president, but I had been at the company for about five or six years. So my dad had already started to transition a lot of operational things to me, but still didn't really, you know, own some of the bigger kind of decisions or things within the business. Going to this class, I would say for anyone who is in a family business or is an entrepreneur, they really put you to the test to be sure that you understand all of the aspects of running a business. So they take you through, you do classwork each week, but you're also in a cohort with other business owners. So you're hearing from them all the things that they are doing or not doing. Um, and each week, you know, we'd have one week we had a company that came in and talked all about succession planning and valuation. You know, another week we had someone, we actually had a three week course all on the financial aspects of running a business. Um, we had people who came in to talk about doing a deeper dive into who are your attorneys in your business and your accountants in your business, who are all the ancillary people that help support your business. So each week on Fridays, I would sit with my dad, he'd come to my office and I would have a yellow pad of questions that I went through with him and asked him. And I think that's when I became much more um, focused on creating a strategic plan for the business. It follows the gazelle method, which is, you know, you do have, you have rocks and you have, um, you know, quarterly goals and um, measuring the things in the business that are really driving your success. So from there is when I really set the stage of saying, this is the kind of company we're gonna be. This is how we're gonna go forward. We looked at, um, hiring some key people, um, the partners that my dad had started with in the business, um, their contract terms were coming to an end. So, um, you know, they retired and that gave me the room to be able to start hiring people with more experience in our industry. Um, that's pretty much, I think, was sort of the change, the, the, the pivot when we decided to really start to make yeah. big changes within the business. So like, why do you have this accountant that you've had for 40 years who was just by himself and not keeping up real well? And, right. and who's your attorney? Well, it's the guy that did our real estate, you know, wasn't really a business attorney. And uh, Jen, you know, she, she found some really good assets when she was in the CEO program at UB. And uh, so when, uh, you know, when I started to think about, is she ready to run the business? I talked to one of her mentors in that class we met for breakfast. He said, she's ready. <laughs> you know, yeah. what you did is brilliant. Um, and whether, you know, what, what prompted get, becoming a part of that organization for you? 
that program. Another local business owner did the same pitch that I just did. And I still do that pitch. I'm, I'm going, I just got, I just accepted the offer to be a mentor to a business that's in the CEL program that's based out of Lockport. So I've never done it before. I say no to it every year. And I just said yes to it this year. So I'm preparing for that meeting. I'm I'm like, are you sure, you know, are you sure I'm the person? They're like, we're sure you're the person. So I still am involved in the program. I'm in the mastery group there, although I think I'm kind of segueing out of that um, particular group. I'm really close with the people who I was in the group with 10 years ago, and I'm still close with the people, the business owners that I was in my mastery group with. They're all coming here to my office in a couple of weeks um, just to get together and commiserate. So I think that that's one of the key things when you are a family business owner or any business owner or entrepreneur, it's to really put other businesses around you or have a cohort of some type where you can really kind of collaborate on things with. So I was lucky because my dad was still really involved in the business itself. You know, I don't have a background in distribution and he does. One of the first hires that we made, that I made, was bringing somebody in who had as big of a book of distribution experience as my dad did. That was Todd Washburn, who came in to be our VP of supplier development. Um, he actually wore two hats at the time because we were small then, smaller then. Um, but he still today is like our go-to resource for every product he can he can name and talk about any product and on the MRO or the construction side. So it's like once we realized what we wanted to do, we just really started to get after it. A big, um, a big component of the CEL program is you create like a clinic. So you define like three key objectives that you want to tackle within your business. And at the time, we really needed to understand and define like who our profile customers were. We needed to know who kind of the profile and ideal distributor was and who the ideal supplier was. And like, we still make refinements to that. And actually we're going through that experience again with our team in this planning that we're doing, talking more about, we stick really to that profile when we bring in a new prospect, but what does the ideal distributor look like and act like once they get into the, into the group. And really the, the, you know, the passion and the, the purpose, our core purpose of what we do is to ensure the success of our member companies. So many of them are small businesses like we are, um, like the people you serve. And my intent is to continue to provide more values to them to help them be better business owners. So we have a monthly business webinar series where we have different experts that come in and talk about <clears throat> hiring and recruiting and um, building company culture and you know all kinds marketing. of marketing and all kinds of topics. Our suppliers also host monthly product webinars. And then we recently, um, within the last two years, we created what we call the NetPlus Academy. And a core component of that is um, our online learning management platform, which is Bluevolt. So those are, um, I think we have over 750 courses in the online LMS that all of our members have access to for free. So they can take courses from Milwaukee Tool and Stanley Black and Decker and Radiance and all of our supplier partners that participate on the platform. Um, those employees can, get into that platform and learn about the products that they sell. Dan, when Jennifer started to go down the road of the CEL program, did you have any concerns or, you know, anything that held you back and what, you know, if it did, what changed it? If it didn't, what were you, you know, what excited you about what was happening? I, well, I I was excited because my wife and I have been spending time in Florida you know, it's kind of hard to run a business when you're back and forth and back and forth. And, and I knew, you know, that if this business was going to grow and succeed and keep going, that, that Jennifer was the one to, to take it to the next level. And, and certainly having a program like that at UB, I mean, once she explained what it was, um, I mean, it was, it was perfect. I mean, it was really almost better than going, just going and getting an MBA because of the relationships with not only the faculty who are all non, non-UB professors, they're all people from, from the real world in Western New York, and then the, the relationship with the students in our group. Um, 
So I thought it was phenomenal. And all of the questions that she came back and asked were, were things that were, were ready to be done. You know, the accountant was tired, the attorney was tired. We needed, we needed a new look. And uh, so I, I was very excited about it. And as she went through it and, and we started putting a lot of these new, new elements in place, um, it, was, it was just logical that she would become the president. And then, and then we, you know, I started talking to, to our accountant and to our attorneys about how are we gonna transition the ownership uh, which we did over time. And it sort of goes back to my, my cousin, Sam Ward, uh, recapitalized the business a couple of times in order to, to bring some ownership of the business to me. And then uh, in, in his estate, I, I sort of got the rest of the business, but it was, we had non-voting common stock and voting common stock and preferred stock. So the first step was to transition the non-voting common to Jennifer. So I still had the common voting. So I still had control. And uh, we did that over a five-year period. And then uh, last January, I gifted the, uh, the, the common voting stock to Jennifer. So she's a 100% owner of the company. And it was, it was, you know, it was the advice of a, a really great attorney who Jen met at CEL, who helped draft all the agreements. And then our new accountants were, one of whom I knew from, from another activity I was part of, um, they really helped with the valuation and with sort of giving, you know, sort of a second opinion on what the attorney was doing. Great. And, it's, you know, one of the things you're, that you're mentioning is the fact of building that team and that the, the the people that got you here might not be the people that get you there. Right, exactly. And and that's you know really important. And you're also talking about that, you know, the the technical piece as well. You know, the the the, the quantifiable piece and the uh, come on, one of my the, the soft side of things, which is you know Jennifer's skill set and making things you know happen that way through the CEL program. The, at Buffalo, and then the technical side, you know, of putting all those pieces together. There's there's a little piece that you know I want to throw in there that make sure that people understand that in the absence of you being financially independent already, you may have had to have sold the business to Jennifer in order to capture those pieces. So one of the reasons I think it's really important that people understand that there is probably a spot for that financial advisor as well on that team or somebody that, you know, you've got, they have to be looped in um, so that they, so that you know that you're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and the, and having the right tax advice as mm -hmm. well. Yes. And, 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 you know, how, how, how it's all going to be treated tax wise. So nobody's going to get some surprise letter from the IRS. Yeah. I think that's a, a really important point to make is that my dad has been very organized financially his whole life. And when this transition was starting to take place, I have a friend who was also going through the transition of her family business and it was a little arduous, you know? And, um, you know, my dad had made it clear to me when my uncle Sam and he had sold the family distribution business, he, he got his equity then and also has been really judicious with his finances his whole life and got great advice from his, um, his from his attorneys and from his accountants. So it made the transition so much better. And I think one of the things that I'm really the most proud of is from the time I came into the business until the time, because we had done a valuation quite a while ago. And then we had to do the uh, do another valuation right before we did the full transition of the ownership, and I the value of the stock had increased like ten times, you know. So I feel you know personally accountable for that the increase in value of the company, and so you know I don't have any guilt about being gifted the business because I've played a major role in growing the organization and and 
increasing the value of the business significantly. So my message to anyone listening who's in a family business is, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated. And if your children are there and they're involved in the business and they want to be there, just let it go. I mean, I'm also lucky that I have a father who made a decision a long time ago that he wanted to go to Florida for several months out of the year and plays a lot of golf and is really active with my mom and just is happy, you know, being here doing the jobs that we give him, which he does all kinds of different jobs, does a lot of um, numbers analysis for us and economic analysis, but also does different projects for the tech and IT team too when they need some other, you know, deeper dives on reporting and stuff done. So he's just as happy being here, like doing that and being a part of our meetings as he is like living his life. Right. Would you say that's pretty accurate? You know, and, and, you know another aspect of the, the transfer of ownership is I'm, I'm kind of lucky that Jennifer only has one sister. Um, she's a school principal. And uh, so I had to treat her equally. Thank God she didn't have 10 sisters and brothers it would have been a little more expensive <laughs> but uh yeah so i you know it just gave a cash gift to my other daughter that matched the value of the business and i, I was kind of lucky along the way um trying to think how many years ago it was probably 25 years ago i was asked to be a trustee of lockport savings bank and it was it was right after we sold we sold our business, so it had to be in 91, 92. Okay. Uh, Lockport Savings Bank was this, you know, small mutual savings bank in Lockport. And, uh, but they, they were transitioning their management and the man they brought in to run, to run the bank had a vision of growing the bank significantly. So maybe three years after it was on the board, we took it public and became First Niagara Financial Group. And, you know, there's, there's, there's benefits to being on the board of a public company. Potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Back options, fees, right. um, which certainly helped uh, my life. And, uh, and, and it was a fantastic experience because right. we did a lot of acquisitions and, uh, you know, so I, I got to really know a lot of the financial aspects of doing acquisitions and and watching the you know Bill Swan who was the president of the bank watching him reach out to other banks who may not be thinking of being acquired but he he laid a lot of groundwork out there so I mean that that experience helped and 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 some of the people that I got to know through that process helped our transition to one of the, one of the accountants was very involved with the bank at the time. Great. Both of you. So that's really interesting. If you, if you look at the parallel there, both of you had took some outside interests that, that came back and helped the business, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I think it's really important. The many times when I'm talking to family owned businesses and, you know, and, both of you have talked to a number of family-owned businesses through the years. There's that maverick kind of, I have to do it myself kind of attitude, especially in the founders that I talk to. Um, and that leads to not always being open to new ideas and mm -hmm. outside side influence. And both of you were positively influenced by outside you know, influences. And so I, you know, I, I share that because I think it's, you may not have a CEL program in the town that you live in, but there's probably a college that has a family business, you know, group available. There's probably a Vistage group somewhere around where you're at. Right. There's a, a family, you know, a, a business coach that maybe you, you should be looking at. And, you know, I, I coach businesses as, as we've talked about and the family businesses that I coach, um, you know, I tell each of them, I would love for you to also be involved in a family business group or a Vistage group to be surrounded by other CEOs, because, you know, you just yeah, need yeah. to know that it's, you're not alone. For sure. And, right? Yeah, no. and you build a great network too. Um, you know, the CEL program was started in Buffalo originally by a group of business owners who were trying to 
help support entrepreneurs that were getting businesses off the ground in Buffalo or even smaller family businesses or smaller businesses. That was really their true intent was, you know, a group of attorneys and accountants and business, like more seasoned business owners were coming together to support these businesses. And so it started and then it started to grow so much so that University of Buffalo School of Management came in and said, hey, we'll pull this program into the university We'll put some professors in to teach the classwork, but then the whole network, the network is huge. It used to be a printed book. It was like this thick of all of the people in the community that are involved as volunteers that react and listen to people's objectives and help provide input. I have so many connections all across Buffalo in terms of the people that I know through that program. But yeah, whether you're in EO, like, I know a lot of friends that are IPO, that's a national no. organization. YPO is a national organization. A lot of associations like our Industrial Supply Association, they have a family business component. They also have a women's business component, which I'm really heavily involved in. So those things are most definitely, that's such great advice, Michael, is that to have, to be involved in something like that, especially like YPO, if you're a younger president or younger owner. I've heard great things about that group as well. 100%, 100%. And all of the, all of those things, if I'm not mistaken, came from Vern Harnish. Yes. He started yes. EO Harnish, through the birthing uh, yeah. of giants at MIT. Yep. Yep. And Vern, the whole basis for how um, the Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership out of UB, theirs is all based in um, Vern scaling up. That's really what they teach off of. So you you learn right off the book from there. And I know EO is like an offshoot of that. And I have lots of friends that do that, but really similar models. Yeah. Um, and I highly recommend those models um, for business owners. When it's when I started, I used the scaling up model mm -hmm. and um, still use it 100% today, but it's just morphed. Um, we work with um, Shannon Susco um, out of uh, Canada who does metronomics. Okay. Another, but she's huge. I mean, she went through Vern's schooling and did everything. You know, her two companies were from Vern's. She just took some things where she added pieces to the framework to say, this is great, but this is what we did to take it to another level sure. kind of thing. And I just, I've, I've really appreciated what she's brought to the table. I know that you're a scaling up, you know, person, business by looking at the core values on your website. So would you mind just talking about what does culture look like at NetPlus Alliance today? How does it, you know, where does it help you? And has it ever been, has it ever hurt you? Um, I would say, so I, to kind of describe our culture, I'll answer that question first. I do think we have a great culture here. It takes a lot to uphold a culture during COVID. So I'm just going to say a big shout out to all of business owners and leaders out there that have been holding up culture through COVID and still are. It's a lot to manage people remotely and continue to sort of knit people together and bring them together and keep them on the same page when you're not physically with each other all the time. Um, but I would say one of the things that I was taught by my dad, that he was taught by, you know, hit my, by my uncle Sam and probably my great uncles before that is premise number one in businesses take really good care of your people. So they take really good care of your customers. And, you know, that was how my dad ran the business at Ward Beals and McCarthy. And it's how I run the business here. I take really good care of my employees. I treat them like family. Um, we're very open and collaborative. So our, you know, our, our structure here is fairly flat. People have a lot of ownership of their jobs. I learned that from a predecessor in a job that I had when I worked back in Boston um, at EF Education. They very much were like, gave you the ownership of your job and you did your job, you know, independently. Nobody was standing over your shoulder watching and making sure that you were doing your work, but you were held accountable to the, um, to the objectives that you were wanting to accomplish like that quarter or that year and the goals that were being set, you know. So as a team, my dad and I really worked together to kind of crunch numbers to set goals, but our team is 100% visible to what our goals are. We check in on those every week. Um, and everyone is involved in the establishment of their department, you know, sort of 
you know, bucket list of items that they really want to do to help reach those goals. So I think that really fosters the culture that we have. I don't know if you have mm -hmm. anything that you want to add to that, but. No, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about culture today, as opposed to 30 or 40 years ago. I didn't really think of culture at Ward Brothers or Ward Beals and McCarthy when I was running that business in the late 1980s, in the late 1980s. <laughs> um, but we, we had a culture that just wasn't designed defined very well. When, I, when we sold the business and I went to work for the company that bought us, there was a total lack of culture. Then, then, I, really, then I realized what culture was. Um, and just a quick story on when sort of the culture of that business, when I was named as a trustee of Lockport Savings Bank, I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous honor. My boss, the company was based in Ohio and my boss, the president of the company said, well, do you really wanna do that? And I said, of course I do. He said, well, how much time is it gonna take? And I said, oh, like a day a month, probably with board meetings and committee meetings. And he said, well, if you wanna give up a, a week's vacation, then you can go ahead and do it. <laughs> wow. that's, that's when I knew that I needed to find something else to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy when you think about it that way. It's the lack of culture, you know, it's huge. What is hiring and, you know, employee retention been like for you over the last 18 months? It's been good. We just hired a new person and he was here today for the first time. He's actually joining our team retreat next week. So I wanted him to be able to come into the office, which is company that he's transitioning out of um, gave him the time to be able to come here and sit and meet with our team today. I'm really excited because our business is based in Lockport and he is a Lockport uh, native and graduate from Lockport High School. So I'm really happy to have hired somebody who I consider to be local. Sure. Um, we did have a person, we, we hired and kind of lost a person in a short period last year, which I don't think is too unsimilar to what a lot of other business owners are dealing with. She had been at her other company for a short period of time before that. She was a recent graduate, just graduated in 2020, had a short stint with another company, took our job, we trained her for three months, and then another agency, ad age, uh, an ad agency that she had interviewed with called her um, and offered her a position. And that was really where her heart was, was wanting to work in advertising. So you know, no love lost, it, other than the fact that we invested the time um, in, in other investments as well. And you, as a small business, you invest a lot when you hire somebody and train them. Um, we take that hiring process really seriously. And so I think every time you go through anything like that, you learn from those experiences. So we sat back down with our HR consultants. We work through a PEO called Employer Services Corporation. So that's another kind of small business hack. We work through a PEO and they do all of our payroll benefits and HR. Okay. So kind of like a buying group, yep. they, they, you know, they take their entire book of employees across all of their um, companies that they work with and they negotiate their healthcare rates and things like that. Um, we sat down with them and they gave us some really good advice. They had said, we think that in this position, you're looking for someone who's a little more mature, looking for someone who's, um, providing this team is so autonomous in terms of how we work. You need somebody who's at a higher level for this position. So we up elevated the position and found a great person. So right. that was good advice for us. Um, we also very active with interns. So we are very active with the University of Buffalo um, through their internship program and their internship department. And um, we always have at least one intern here at all times, sometimes two throughout the year. Okay. That's great. One of the things that I learned from the scaling up was that ho the whole top grading process. And I will share, you know, if you haven't read top grading, read top grading. Um, that one piece has helped me in our um, hiring better than anything else. And it's, yeah. you know, it's how we hire and how, I mean, 
even for the smallest position, you know, the, the lowest position in our business, when you have three employees and you're going to four, that's, that's a lot, you know what right. I'm saying? And, it, it but is. even, but it, if you've got, you know, if you have 200 employees and bringing in that position, every position matters. Yeah. And so, you know, hire slow, fire fast is kind of the way that, that we do things. And we really push for those values. We, we have questions around the core values of the company today. Um, we describe what we do really well. We have questions that are searching out that, you know, will they fit the core purpose? I want them, you know, I want them to go to lunch with people and make sure that they're a fit and people can see themselves being comfortable as part of it. And people that I talk about this hiring process with, they're like, who's got time for all of that? I'm like, I don't have time to retrain somebody that lasts three or four or six months and then I have to do it again. So yeah. I agree with that to a certain extent. I feel like it's that I, I know that exact same statement of hiring slow and firing fast. I do think that for small businesses, that can be really hard. Firing people can be hard because oh, you're, you're, you're going to put a gaping hole in your business when that happens. And it's just, it's painful, you know, especially small business owners that treat everybody like family. So separating from someone is difficult, difficult for the owner. It's difficult for the whole team. Um, and I don't think it's ever a, a good or fun process. So the second part of that in terms of hiring slow, not like a big luxury, although in the great resignation, as they're calling it, I think that small business owners are the benefit of that because people are leaving big companies or they're leaving jobs where they don't feel like people take mm -hmm. care of them. And we have very flexible work schedule. We are a very family friendly business, I would say, in the sense of allowing people to kind of work their lives, you know, work their work around their lives, you know, and um, all of our all of our team is very committed to the work that they do. So they may pull off here, but then step up later, you know, and they, the kind of ebb and flow of their work is done in a way that's healthy for them. Um, and we've learned a lot of good lessons from that. You know, we had an employee that came to us last year and said, I want to live in Florida. You know, my grandparents are down there. The weather is nice. She had lived at home with her parents through COVID. And I was like, you want to still be here and work for us? Like, that's great. You know, so she moved and it's been working wonderfully. Um, so I think that's a, a big factor is that um, you do need to maybe be efficient, not fast, not hire, hire slow, but hire efficiently. You know, I think you got to be efficient because people are getting picked up by companies pretty quickly. So that would just be my advice. Dot all the I's, like you said, we do core values in our interviewing process. Make sure you go through background checks or do credit checks if somebody's going to be handling money. Um, we just used a great um, assessment tool onboarding our new employee, um, which really helps give us a better picture of kind of how they work and how we should be coaching them and how we should be onboarding them. So that's that was a great new thing that we just implemented. Do you mind sharing the name of the assessment? So the group that we used through our um, HR consultant was called Work Ignite, and I believe it was called PXT. I think that's the name of the assessment tool, but I will get back to you on that. So first time. So sure. spent more time reading the document than looking at the cover of it, but it's a, it's a fairly new tool and really very thorough and helpful already. Right. Yeah, we use, you know, DISC and Colby are the two that we utilized. And yeah. one, one of the things we found is by just using one assessment, it doesn't give you the full picture. And so you really need to have two or three or something that gives you a multifaceted look at somebody so that you yeah. can have a just a more in-depth look. And yeah. This understand. one aligns the job with, with the person. Person, so, perfect. Uh, Molly, who's the director of marketing, who's hiring for the position, she actually did a, a, did a survey questionnaire first and then aligned that up against um, the strengths of our uh, new employee and was really a nice fit. And there were just, there's just some things in terms of, like I said, with onboarding to be sure that we're, you know, paying attention to some of the ways that he prefers to work. Love it. Nice. Yeah. So... If you're talking to, you know, family businesses in front of you right now, 
um, and just wanted to impart, you know, what other pieces of wisdom might you impart that we haven't talked about already? Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the whoever's listening here to, to this podcast? Let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of a tough question. I, well, I think, um, I think you have to have the right, <clears throat> the right family member or members. I know when I went to work for my cousin, he said, that's it. We're not going to hire any other family members. Because he said, we just, we don't have, we don't have the bandwidth to hire that many people and pay that many people mm. sort of at a family level. So I think you have to pick the right family member, member or members, depending on the size of the business. And I think your advice of doing something different before you go in the family business. I know in the distributors, a lot of who I knew growing up in the business, their parents, it's father had sent them out to work for a friend, maybe across the country or somewhere else. You know, here, take care of my son for, for a couple of years and knowing, knowing that we're gonna want him back. Right. And uh, I think that's, that's really good advice. And then, and then certainly some networking or some educational experience like Jennifer had uh, was phenomenal for our company. Great. Thanks, Dan. And I, yeah, and I would say trust. That mm -hmm. would be the one word I would use because through this whole time period working with my dad, he's always trusted me. And even when I've done things that didn't work out or I want to try something, he trusted me to do that. And if it didn't work out, we knew it wasn't going to be catastrophic. So I think to trust your children or your family members that come into the business and also, you know, taking that down to your employees, you know, to really, we, we trust them to do the jobs that they do. And I know that they know that. Um, they do an incredible job taking care of our members and our customers. And um, so I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice mm -hmm. I would have for family businesses, just really trust each other. Love it. And, you know, to that point, Jennifer, I want to, you know, make sure that people understand how to do that. If they don't know it, Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Oh, yeah. It builds the pyramid and the, the, the foundation of that pyramid is all about trust mm -hmm. and understanding what trust means and what it is, is just being able to, you know, like you said, I, I made a decision to go down a certain path. Dad trusted me to do it, whether it worked out or it didn't work out, you know, and, and it did. But we learn, from, you know, if there is a mistake in there, we, we learn from it. And so, you know, the, the Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team and how to overcome them. I tell everybody, whether it's a family business or a not, you know, or you're just working with your non-family members, your leadership team, it's a great framework to continue those kinds of things. And when you look at your core values, it's all throughout there, you know, grow together, be nimble, value relationships, be accountable for results, embrace change, be honest and genu genuine. You know, if you haven't read Five Dysfunctions of a Team, you will love it. And it'll be a great book club for your leadership team to go through. Um, but it fits everything that, that you talk about in your core values. I love them. Thank you. I am so excited and really feel blessed that the two of you shared what you've shared with us today. I want to say thank you to Jennifer and Dan. Um, and if people, you know, heard this you know, and wanted to reach out in terms of um, if somebody from the Buffalo area wanted to talk to you about CEL, is that okay? Of course. Um, and then the other one is if you're a family business in the construction or manufacturing industry and want some information about, uh, you know, this buying, you know, group alliance, Net Plus Alliance, you should definitely reach out um, to Jennifer as well for that. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you for that pitch. Appreciate it. No problem. Um, I'm Michael Columbus. This has been the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we really appreciate you listening today. Um, it, be sure to subscribe and, so that you don't miss future episodes. And we'll talk to you the next time on the Family Biz Show. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.